0: Welcome back to the Zombie Coder Podcast, where we believe less is more, worse is better, and features should darn well have purpose. This is once again the lead undead software engineer, Andrew, speaking from my small family homestead in the Midwest. This is episode 8, and the first of a series where I hope to cover computer science topics for the new developer or the professional looking to refresh their skills. Part of the reason why I'm doing this series is actually to help myself. I believe that the best way to learn a new subject or to keep your skills up to date is to teach others. And so I hope to cover things that I find interesting or perhaps things that I would like to better know. The goal for these episodes will be to cover the topic in an accurate way, hopefully a fun way, but I again am human and so I will probably misspeak. Hopefully the show notes will provide resources for things that are unclear, and if there are eventual corrections, they should be there as well. I do hope that if you hear something that is incorrect, please let me know, but do not turn into the person that is seeking corrections for corrections' sake. If there is something that is debatable, don't get overly pedantic about that subject. Now, as a native Texan, I'll just say as a disclaimer that, well, you're doing good if I'm actually speaking proper grammar at all, and if I'm not making up words, you should be impressed, and if I'm pronouncing things correctly, well, be thankful, because I probably wouldn't without doing a fair amount of research first. In any case, I figured I would start off with something that I always thought was an interesting subject and one that were I developing a computer science curriculum, I would actually put fairly early. Now generally, the college board actually specifies what should be taught in computer science 1 and 2 as far as high school students go, and kind of matching up the initial college classes that a new comp sci major will take. And this subject is not really covered, at least not in any real depth, and that's kind of sad to me because... From my perspective, this particular subject has a lot of depth potential, and it's something that really can go from either a couple lines of code that have a satisfying result to actually a PhD thesis where you could cover various algorithms in much detail. Now, what is that subject? It is the one of hashes and hashing algorithms. And why do I want to cover it? Well, the first thing that I really want to do in this podcast as a general rule is destroy magic arguments. There's a lot of things that we do on a day-to-day basis as programmers and coders where we consider things as just magic black boxes. And as far as hashes go and hash algorithms go, if you look on GitHub and start looking at the meaning of those magic little strings that allow you to define a version of a Git repository, we often don't think about what those strings are. We just see them as a clump of letters. And indeed, one of the really cool things about understanding how those letters are created to represent a version is the ability to recreate that system in a place where Git might not make sense, but the general idea behind it will. Of course, I'm not really gonna go into that particular area today. We are going to talk about the underlying algorithm as far as how Git identifies versions later, but the main subject of this discussion is going to be just the hash itself. Kind of the other reason why I like this as a subject is they are very simple, pure functions, and we can look at them from the perspective of either a pure function from a functional programming language standpoint, or as potentially a state machine that creates a result in a sort of iterative process. And finally, the last uh, item as far as the reason why, I think they are interesting from the standpoint of encouraging critical thinking of security and secure processes again, trying to remove the magic from best practices where somebody says you should do this thing and really nobody has an idea as to why, but we do it just because it's said so. Now, I've kind of talked about the reasons why I wanna discuss hash functions. Now, if you're a beginner in computer science, you might not know what a hash function is, or if you're experienced, you might be wanting a formal definition for this uh, conversation. And so let's start off with that formal definition And I'm going to say that a hash function takes an arbitrary data set and maps it to a data set of fixed size. And this means a few different things, the first of which is we have a proper function. That function takes an input data set and creates an output data set. It also allows us to make assumptions on the output because the output is fixed size or is a known data set. So we can have potentially an unknown data set that we're mapping to this known data set. And that definition of the known data set or the fixed size could be something as simple as the number of binary digits. So we could say, for example, we are creating a 32-bit integer for our hash result, or it could be something like we're outputting an integer ranging from negative 100 to 100. Both of those would be valid hash function outputs. This definition is a bit overly broad because it allows taking a number of functions that would perform poorly as a hash function and saying yes, that that qualifies because the output is simply that fixed size. So to fix that, we need to create some qualifiers as to what makes a good hash function, what is a desirable hash function in general. And due to just the sheer number of use cases for hash functions, that can get fairly difficult pretty quickly. But we can start off with one item that is fairly universal across all the uses of hash functions. And that is the idea of uniformity of output. Or simply, given a distribution of inputs, the output distribution across the output set should be uniform. And why do we want this? Well, the primary goal for uniformity of output would be to reduce collisions, or the case where you have two inputs that create the same output hash and the uniformality property of a good hash function minimizes the probability of that happening. What would be some other desirable items besides uniformity, maybe not as universal? Well, probably the most obvious one to start off with is speed. We want the calculation of our hash to be fast. It's desirable in general to be fast, but if we're using the hash for something where we're trying to optimize, such as a hash table, the calculation of that hash and comparing the hash values should be faster than just comparing the original values together that kind of leads into another item as well that of output size we would generally want for most use cases the output size to be smaller than the original input size So if I have a set of strings uh, that are averaging from 10 to 20 characters, using a resultant hash of 50 characters might not be desirable. So given that basic definition, let's try to create or at least experiment with a few different ideas of hash functions. Let's start off with saying that I have an integer, and I want to create a hash for the integer. And that integer, for the sake of argument, let's say it's a 64-bit integer. As an initial kind of swipe at this, let's say that we take the total number of ones in the binary representation of that integer and represent the hash as a one if that total is odd, and then a zero if that total is even. Now, do we have a hash function? Well, we have a 64-bit integer result, and we've compressed it down to a one or zero value. So as far as the formal definition that I was working with here. Yes, we have indeed created a fixed size result. Do we have uniformity of output? Well, there again, yes we do. The given 64-bit integer, we're going to have half of our values go to 0 and half of our values go to 1 just by the properties of uh, Boolean algebra. Is it a good hash function? Well, it is fast, right? It does have uniformality, but Our output range is awfully small. We are going from 64-bit ints to just one bit, and so we're going to potentially have a huge number of collisions. So even though we have the uniformality principle met here, we kind of have a crappy hash function. The reason why I wanted to start off with this as an example is a few different hash functions actually kind of source from the idea of parity or checksumming, and This is the simplest version of that. If we start getting into more complicated variants of parity and CRCs, we can actually indeed end up with some good hash functions. And indeed, as you just saw, even as crappy as it is due to the output size, this idea of just counting up ones and zeros does tend to create a good hash function from the uniformity principle. So what's another approach we could use? Let's try to look at something that will actually turn out to be practical. Well, I have a 64-bit integer, so maybe I redefine my output size to be 64 bits, and then I just say that my input is my output. And then I have an identity function. And the identity function does have some niceties to it. Um, Starting off with, it's a perfect hash. We have one input to one output, There is a one-to-one relationship of inputs to outputs, and that is desirable. But the problem here is that the hash input must be as big or smaller than our hash output. So perhaps we can do something else. Let's say that we know that the distribution of integers in our 64-bit int is uniform. So we're taking a uniform distribution. Of integers and going to an output we're not going to have clumps well one thing we could do is a bit selection and just pick a set of bits and take those and use that to compress the value so maybe we take the last 32 bits of our 64 bit integer and now we have something that resembles a hash that might not necessarily work out well if our 64 bit ints have clumps in them, if the data is clumpy, this might actually be bad for the uniformality. And as well, if we have uniform data, but we wanna make sure that that data has not been corrupted or there's loss there, we have not necessarily protected against that with this function. Now it is usable for various portions of what you might want to use a hash function for. Now we've considered some methods of taking a fixed size input and creating an output that's potentially lower size but we really want something that's a little bit more general so we want to expand our potential inputs and say okay it's any integer it's up to maybe 256 bits maybe 512 maybe we're looking at strings as numbers is there something we can do with this input data now where we preserve the uniformity principle, or we at least attempt to preserve the information in the string. To simplify the problem, let's say that those input bits are still relatively uniformly distributed. We're not dealing with clumps of data yet. Well, in that case, we can do something called folding. Folding is where we attempt to preserve a portion of the input information while we're compressing the data down to smaller bits. We're still going to end up losing information overall but we're going to try to do it in a more controlled way. The simplest operation for this, or maybe not simplest, but at least most common, is to use the XOR operator. And we might do something as simple as take every byte in our input stream and XOR it with the next byte. And this indeed will give us a result that is a single byte. Now, the problem happens where the input bytes might not necessarily be uh, nicely uniformly distributed, and so now we must do something else. Now, for a fixed-size input, we could potentially divide by a large number, or at least a number that was larger than our input size, and we could choose a prime, and that prime would preserve at least relatively most of the information in our input stream, or the output stream would depend on the prime, I guess is another way of putting it, so that any bit changed would potentially change your output bits. Of course, division is an expensive operation, and fixing or finding a prime that actually maintained that property would be difficult for a large input stream. And so, what we can do there instead is take the input stream and divide it into smaller chunks, apply that operation, and then do the XOR operation after. And now we have the basis of a great many hashing algorithms. Indeed, one of the more popular hashing algorithms is the FNV hash. Now, the FNV hash doesn't actually use division. Instead, it uses multiplication and truncation, and then it uses the XOR operator on each of those chunks of data. But we've now gotten to the heart of the vast majority of hashing algorithms and a way to construct a hash algorithm on your own. You can take and find a division of bytes, so pick either one byte, two bytes, or you know 32 bits, however you want to do it, for your input stream. Provide a XOR a mask of some sort or a division mask of some sort and accumulate your byte results. Now, returning back to the FNV hash, that was actually one of the more popular hashes, and you'll see it all over the place if you start paying attention to use cases where a fast hash is needed. In fact, one of the more popular cases was in the Python uh, implementation. Now, Python has since switched away, but you'll find it in other interpreters, and in general, just random places wherever a hash tables needed and somebody needs some quick and dirty implementation. All right, so what are the issues with the FNV hash? Well, the first thing you kind of look at is it uses a byte at a time and that's slow. So maybe something that uses a larger data chunk size might actually be better. And the second thing, which is actually going to be the more important for the remainder of this conversation, is that the FNV hash can be gamed or I can take a input and figure out a resultant hash or figure out a collision given an input or a desired key. And now we'll introduce the concept of what we would call a cryptographic hash. A cryptographic hash is one where we have an input data set that maps to a fixed size still, but seemingly random output data set. Indeed, the desired characteristic of a cryptographic hash is that it is completely unpredictable what your output result would be. It's deterministic, so given the same input, you'll get the same output results over and over, but it is not predictable. So we can't predict, given an input, what our output will be. And more importantly, we would not be able to take a data set and modify it to create the same hash. And if you stop and think about the applications of that, they are numerous The advantage of this sort of algorithm is it gives us a way to fingerprint data and say, okay, this byte stream here equates to this hash value, and that hash value can be communicated or used instead of the byte stream itself. This is where we actually source Git version numbers from. The Git repository system uses a SHA-1 algorithm hash, which, when Git was created, was considered cryptographically secure. Since then, it's gotten easier, or at least less expensive, to calculate a colliding SHA-1, and it is expected that over time it's going to become more and more possible as computing resources increase. Which leads us to the SHA-2 algorithm, and the one that I'm not going to cover in too much detail, but I will give a broader, over-level view of, and I think it's also interesting from the standpoint of usage and history. Now, the SHA-2 algorithm itself was originally created by none other than the NSA. Now, they published uh, the initial paper for it in 2001, and the goal with the NSA's publishing of this algorithm was to help secure government services. There are two main variants of the SHA-2 algorithm, SHA-256 and SHA-512, both of which can be used to create other bit count uh, data sets or items. Now SHA-256 is one of the most fundamental algorithms you'll find on the internet In multiple applications now. It's used largely for SSL or security HTTPS uh, style connections and also it forms the basis of a large portion of the Bitcoin technology or blockchain technology that we hear about on a regular basis. So what makes SHA-256 or SHA-2 a good algorithm to use and why is it so important for the internet as a whole? Now, since the SHA algorithm has such a resilience against collision attacks, it is very difficult for somebody to create two data sets that have the same hash or construct a new data set that matches an existing hash. So if I communicate the hash to another person, they can know without having the data that I have if they have a data set that happens to match it, which if you think about from just a practical level, that means you could do something like publish a hash out there for your data set, and then that would verify that your data set existed at the date that you published it, because you would not be able to create the hash otherwise. Now an astute observer might happen to notice that because we're going from potentially an infinite number of inputs to a fixed number of outputs, that we are guaranteed to have duplicates at some point. There must exist two data sets or two input values that will create the same hash. But what ends up happening, though, is that there are so many possible output values that finding those two inputs that create the same output is near impossible. Indeed, this is the exact opposite issue, or the exact opposite situation, I should say, that we were in when we created that parity hash at the beginning of this conversation. That parity hash only had one or zero, so two potential output values for a near infinite number of input values. And now we have just an enormous number of output values possible, even with only using 256 or 512 bits. In fact, with that 256 bits, we could individually identify each grain of sand on the Earth and still have an enormous multitude of bits left over for multiple other Earths with all of their grains of sand. I've also seen it compared to, say, the number of atoms in the moon or any other number of just hugely astronomically high uh, values or examples. And so... The end result of all this is that for the SHA-2 algorithm, there has not been a recorded case of a hash collision. So that means that every SHA-2 that's ever been calculated, nobody has managed to find two resultant hashes that had the same value. Well, how does it work under the hood? Well, I won't go into too much detail, but it is basically a modification of R, FNV or any other number of hashes that operate off of the XOR operator or the XOR operator combined with some input data set. In the case of SHA-2, we have an input data set or a register initialization set, and then we maintain eight registers which we use throughout the algorithm with a series of operators to lead us to the next step in the process, each step dividing up and processing an input chunk of data. Now SHA-2 is just one in a history of these sorts of algorithms. You have the SHA-1 algorithm, which I might have mentioned earlier as being the algorithm that Git uses behind the scenes. It operates on a very similar set of principles. And even earlier than that, you had the MD5 algorithm, which was popular for a while for HTTPS or SSL connections, as well as verifying that binary data uh, in a downloaded match. So you would see MD5s or SHA-1s or SHA-256s posted for uh, binary archives that you would download. And then you'd run a checksum utility to make sure that those values matched. Historically, the longer these algorithms exist, the more vulnerable they are to attack, and the more computer power exists to attempt to attack them. The SHA-1 algorithm has recently become uh, less secure or not as trusted, and there are indeed now published collisions. MD5 is even more broken, as it has gotten to the point now where commodity hardware can be used to break it. Of course, you also have now the upcoming SHA-3 algorithm, which will eventually replace SHA-2 when that gets older and uh, is not as secure. The interesting thing here is that if I published an MD5 hash back before MD5 was really broken, and it was apparent and documented and multiple people shared that hash, I could use that hash still and say, okay, it would not have been possible for me at the date I published this uh, to to uh, create the hash because I would not have been able to because I wouldn't have had the technology. On the flip side, as time goes on, it becomes easier to create a forged piece of data or to forge a hash, which gets into the idea of what do you want the hash for. In general, a cryptographic hash, even something like a SHA-1, which would be easily duplicated, if you're broadcasting it at the same point of time as you're comparing it, Since you don't have that large time gap, it's not going to be necessarily insecure. Likewise, there's nothing saying that the MD5 hash isn't very usable for processes such as verifying data. Of course, that would have the caveat that you trusted the data transfer it was done, well, honorably. Like, there wasn't a bad actor in the process of the data transfer. So that might be something like copying something to a USB stick, or or maybe you just want to verify a download that you've done from a trusted source with an encrypted connection, and so you're just saying, okay, yeah, I probably have the same two files and I'm trusting that there's not somebody trying to forge data or create a forged copy of the data. To extend that let's take a look at git repositories. Now git is still using the SHA-1 algorithm which is considered less secure. It's not necessarily as broken as MD5 but in the near term we can expect people to start being able to create colliding results. All right, so what are the implications of that as far as Git's concerned? Well, the way that Git uses this is it's not exactly intended to be a trusted mechanism. You still have other means of authentication on top. If you were requiring it for an element of trust or to verify that the Git repository had not changed from something you downloaded, that would potentially be a problem. In terms of the use as identifying bits of data, though, as long as we don't have data that's been maliciously created, we still have the property of this extremely low probability of data collision. Another way of putting that is we don't expect there to be any data collisions unless somebody tries to make one. So while Git might not be able to use the SHA-1 algorithm for specifying the level of trust in data, we can use other means for the trust mechanism and still use the SHA-1 algorithm as a way of identifying binary artifacts. Now, storing binary artifacts and indexing them by some sort of checksum or hash is actually a fairly popular thing to do in industry. But funny enough, I have not ever managed to persuade a manager that we should rely just on SHA-1 or SHA-2 as identifying binary artifacts, I've always gotten pushback from somebody that basically said, oh, well, in the off chance that you do have a collision, you're going to need to be able to handle that. And so I have repeatedly ended up writing test cases, which the probability of the Earth ending in a fiery explosion by asteroid would be more likely than that code ever being executed which just goes to show never underestimate the ability of a manager to be paranoid when it comes to statistically unlikely events even if they ignore all the statistically likely events to happen well hopefully you're still awake and listening to this as i conclude this discussion of hash functions the show notes will link to a few different uh, hash algorithms and information resources if you want to actually try your hand at implementing some of these I do recommend it, and it's also an interesting exercise to try to optimize the code and see if you can create something that runs in as few clock cycles as possible, especially if you're coding in a systems programming language like C, C++, Rust, or Go. The next computer science-y podcast I do, I'm hoping to actually build upon the hash function concept, and we're going to talk a little bit about, well, how Bitcoin and blockchain works under the hood and the actual applications for it beyond some of the, just what I would say, hype. Well, until the next episode, this is the Zombie Coder, out. Music by Nautics, This podcast and others available at Stitcher.com or check out just this podcast at Textux.com.